This is Julie Rhodes of Not Your Hobby Marketing Solutions, and you're listening to the Beer Mighty Things podcast. Hey, thanks for tuning into the Beer Mighty Things podcast, your place for education and happenings in the craft food and beverage industry. I'm your host, Kyle Reiner. Here, I interview folks around the world who are doing mighty things in these industries. My goal is to entertain, educate, and inspire. If I'm doing those things, give us a five-star rating and a little follow over there on Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment if you can. It goes a long way in helping others find the show. And, you know, hey, we appreciate it. This podcast is sponsored by craftbrewinginsurance.com, craftdistillinginsurance.com, and insuringwine.online. And with that, let's get into it. Welcome into the Beer Money Things podcast. It's what you listen to while you brew. It's what's in your ears as you drink beers. Today, we're talking barrel aging 101. We're talking wild yeast innovations. And I couldn't think of anybody else better than to bring in than the former barrel program manager at New Holland, the guy who did every role and including like the blending at Goose Island. And now he's the technical brewing manager of Mark Anthony Brewing in Chicago. Please welcome in Tim Faith. Tim, how are we doing? Really good. How are you? I am Thanks well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad we connected. Um, you are the ultimate LinkedIn poster. I learned a lot <laughs> from, you know, like I spend a lot of time on, on LinkedIn and I find that, you know, there's just, that's where I want to spend my time versus the other platforms. I do love Instagram. That's my jam. But if I'm going to kind of post or read, it's, it's LinkedIn. And I've found that every single day you are posting numerous educational articles, which ultimately like they spur ideas for the, uh, for the podcast. So thank you. Yeah, definitely. Just trying to, trying to spread the, uh, the knowledge, honestly. Yeah. So do you spend a lot of time like reading and researching or? Yeah, I honestly, that's, I think been the foundation for a lot of my, uh, I guess, innovative thinking, inspiration, everything in between. And I think it, it takes a lot of, um, education and, and to form a foundation for doing a lot of those things. Um, and I mean, I could, I could use Facebook, I could use Instagram, but honestly, LinkedIn just has the, the correct network for that kind of thing, especially from an educational perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Uh, when did you get into brewing and kind of talk to us about this journey? Yeah. Um, I was, I was a collegiate runner and I, I think it was my sophomore year of college. I got injured and realized I was a pretty boring person because all I did was run. Um, and I was, I was pre-med at the time simultaneously. And, uh, my, my parents were like, why don't you just, I don't know, check out homebrewing. So I started homebrewing and taking more. <laughs> wait, 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 <laughs> you're like, uh, pre-med, I can't run anymore. I'm boring. And your parents told you to try homebrewing. Yeah. I mean, simultaneously, one of That's my amazing. friends in college started homebrewing. So there's, there's a little influence there. Um, and I was That's like, awesome. oh, that's, that's kind of neat. Like you can apply a bunch of like science to Correct. something really cool. And again, I, I later, I learned that like all the sciences apply to, to brewing. Um, so I, I kind of my junior year, I did a uh, medical internship in Australia and my parents gave me a little beer journal from pier one. And they're like, stop drinking Everclear and Sangria, go drink some beer. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I ended up spending like my life savings, which again, wasn't a whole lot back then yeah. um, on beer. And I, I peeled every label off of every beer I tried and wrote notes about it to kind of inform my home brewing simultaneously. Uh, but honestly, it was, F, it was during that internship, I, I decided to switch majors to microbiology um, to get into beer. Um, so that was, that was 2010. Uh, came back, uh, pretty much worked with my micro teacher to design a uh, independent study and capstone class while then simultaneously working at a local brewery in Davenport, Iowa, mm -hmm. um, to pretty much just come up with a uh, uh, basically what a, a lab would look like for a small brewery under 10,000 barrels. Um, and yeah, that was that was pretty much my gateway in. So I was I worked my last semester at that brewery. Uh, splitting the time between learning how to put on a tri-clamp to packaging, shipping, receiving, even bartending. So it was a pretty cool job in college. Yeah. And uh, and then the other half time was spent in the lab, propagating, preserving, um, isolating different yeast strains. And um, 
yeah, it was, that was, that was a cool foundation. And I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. Cause that's, that's kind of what a, a small liberal arts college can do for you. You can pave your own way. Um, Not only that, I mean, your parents giving you like, go for it. Like that's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly that, that beer journal thing kind of turned into something in, in and of its own. Um, I ended up logging like well over 3000 beers, just first in just a, a stack of composition notebooks, but yeah. then it actually became a beer blog. Um, I think predating untapped had I done anything with that. I, it could have gone <laughs> oh, somewhere, man. but it's still out there. If you want to look at it, if you want to look at some old logos from like Goose Island, Schlafly, uh, it's, it's beer to try dot blogspot.com. I think my last post was like 2013, but it's still a good, it. good history. <laughs> it's super um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, I, they hired me, uh, on graduation day and I, I worked there for about a year, just pretty much as you'd know, doing everything at a, a small brewery, um, uh, everything from canning to brewing, filtering, bartending, shipping, receiving inventory, everything. So it was, it was probably, um, it, it was a really good foundation for the rest of my trajectory in, in brewing. And I see that from, you know, your bio that you guys were doing 16 ounce cans at that time. Yeah, we were shrink sleeving too. So I would, I mean, this might be, I, I don't know if this is, uh, you can fact check this, but they, they said the owners at least said they were the first brewery to actually shrink sleeve uh, cans. Huh. They took that same technology from like, uh, I don't know, they, they shrink sleeve a, a deodorant next to like a mouthwash or something. I don't know, but um, it was, it was a similar kind of um, technology and it, yeah, it was, it was cool. It was a cask canning line. And then later we got a, a wild goose. So it was a good, good experience there. Yeah. Cause wild goose wasn't even a thing yet. No, no. <laughs> what, would you have like a two head or a one head or was it? Like it was, a... it was a forehead yeah. cask filler and it was a pain in the ass. And sure. it, it probably could have been a lot better had I known more about canning. Um, but again, I was fresh out of college, really didn't know anything. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a good experience though. Love it. And then, um, so you, you leave there, you go to run the barrel program at New Holland Brewing in yeah, uh, they're in Michigan, yeah. right? In Michigan, Holland, Michigan. Um, yeah, I started there in March of 2012 on, on the brew house and, uh, literally like a month or two later, um, the previous, uh, head of the barrel program, Molly Browning, who's now at Lelleman, um, she left and kind of gave me a month to Run, run me up to speed on the barrel program and everything. And I guess it, it was a huge undertaking, but I think, yeah, New Holland provided me a really good backbone for just innovation using, using natural ingredients um, specifically around barrel aging and all the things you could do with barrels. Hmm. Um, so at the time they were, they were, we were going through about 3000 bourbon barrels a year on a three month rotation um, first and second use. Um, and then they also, uh, that was, that was the other opportunity to really learn about sours and wild ales. Um, cause we, they had a big program dedicated to that too. Nice. And that's, I think I have two in my basement. It was a dragon's milk. Dragon's milk. Yep. Nice. Yep. Which I hear now is about 50% of their, their volume, um, which is wow. kind of crazy for a, a barrel aged beer, but yeah, uh, yeah, pretty cool. Um, yeah. And I, I kind of kickstarted the, the variants off of that. Um, okay. I think it, previously they hadn't really done much, um, aside for like a variant for a beer, for a beer fest or something, but, um, yeah, it was a really great opportunity, especially learning just inventory control and, um, mm -hmm. barrel management. And, uh, there, again, there's multiple ways to have a barrel mature maturation program, but, uh, theirs was unique because it was temper temperature controlled, um, which was different from what I had seen. We'll get into that a little bit. And they had, yeah. um, they had, a, they were doing kombucha back then too. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I built their kombucha brew house. It was pretty much an old CIP skid. And, uh, I was originally inspired by the, the guys in Ypsilanti. Um, uh, what are they called? Uh, they do the bourbon peach kombucha unity vibrations. Okay. Um, so I, I literally just asked the owner, um, of new Holland, if, if I could start making kombucha and he said, go for it. So, yeah, uh, I scaled up my my home kombucha that I had since sophomore year of, of college and brought it up to, we were brewing up upwards of maybe like 150 gallons a week. So it wasn't much, but it was it was something to supply the pubs and 
Yeah. Uh, well, that's yeah. wild because this stuff is now like, you know, over the last few years, it's just be kind of, at least where I live in the, you know, the East coast is becoming really popular now, but you were doing all this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> 10 man, plus I, years I ago. wish I jumped into it my, on my own because it would have been something, but yeah, uh, you live and you learn. <laughs> Shit, man. Yeah. I guess whatever they're doing in the Midwest, you know, now it's going to be popular on the East coast in 10 years. So you yeah, right, right. <laughs> the rest of the world, 15 years later, <laughs> that's wild. Awesome, man. Yeah. All right. So you spend your time there and then you move over to Goose Island. How does that come about? Yeah. So I'm, I'm from Chicago. So okay. I was, it was an easy decision to move back to family and everything. Cubs um, fan, White Sox fan. Honestly, I, I, I mostly just run. <laughs> I'll watch, <laughs> I'll watch baseball and football, but okay. yeah, track and field. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, three of my sisters, two of my brothers are in Chicago. So it, was, it just made sense to come back here. Um, but I also developed the love for barrel aging. And I think the next obvious step in that kind of trajectory was going to the source, the place that really, um, honestly invented barrel aging back in like 1992. So, um, it was, it was a good decision to really kind of take that step. And, um, I had actually been always going to Goose Island, uh, my parents had been taking me there since I was like eight. However, I didn't find out they were a brewery until I turned like 2021. 20, yeah. Um, I, I just went to the pub for the pub chips cause they were honestly the best pub chips I'd I've ever had. Honestly. Uh, they Unfortunately do, they don't uh, make them anymore, but did they do root beer as well. Yeah, they did root beer. It was, it was under contract in, um, in Wisconsin. So okay. yeah, I always kind of root beer to be just the best. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's <laughs> awesome. Dude, that's cool, man. I didn't realize that. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, I wasn't, I'm not that old. So just goose Island was, they, they kind of created barrel aging in 92. Was it them? Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was Greg Hall at a beer dinner with, uh, yeah. the master distiller of, I think Jim beam. And they just got talking about, uh, it was a cigar bourbon and beer dinner. And Greg just asked, uh, the, the master distiller, I forgot his name already, but, um, if he had a couple bourbon barrels and I think they celebrated their hundredth their thousandth batch of beer out of that brew pub by just brewing the biggest beer possible. And wow. threw it in some bar- in, in some bourbon barrels, and I think by 1995, that was probably the first commercially produced bourbon barrel aged beer uh, right. in the market. Yeah, was it called Bourbon County at that point? Um, I'm not sure. That's a good question. Okay. Yeah, it's been a while since I told that story, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> dude, that's fantastic. Super cool. Mm-hmm. Now, are you, um, you know, being from Chicago, are, are you big into blues music and some buddy guy and yeah. that sort of thing? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Kingston right. Mines. You, okay. All right. Yeah. Is that, what do you listen to when you run? Um, I don't listen to music at all. I, oh, I like no. to be alone with my thoughts. Yeah. Nice. I have a podcast <laughs> I did with, uh, Mark Sigonis of high beer, um, their outdoor company. And he okay. talks about running naked and do these, you know, 25, 50 milers you know, naked, not, clothing but no no noise oh okay okay <laughs> like, I, think oh, I haven't tried running naked yet but <laughs> <laughs> yeah depends on the weather yeah definitely <laughs> might, might get arrested. Not, not today yeah yeah <laughs> awesome man cool so let's dive into um give me just a quick overview of mark anthony brewing and then we'll kind of talk into uh barrel aging 101 yeah yeah a lot of people don't know this and actually i didn't i didn't really know this until i started interviewing for the company but mark anthony is the um uh, producer of White Claw and Mike's Hard Lemonade. So okay. um, two big wins for uh, this company, especially in the flavored malt beverage RTD industry. Um, they sure. first produced Mike's Hard in 1999. Isn't that crazy? Like most that of us crazy. drink that not in high school, but. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's um, funny. Like, well, uh, I played in a golf league a few years ago. We were in it for a few years. And once in a while, you know, the, the cart person will come around and they're like, give me a Mike's hard lemonade, you know, like it's, uh-huh. it's hot out and we're golfing. What the hell, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It's quenching. It's refreshing. Yeah. It's everything you want. <laughs> it's funny. For sure. Um, and yeah. And then in 2015, a uh, white clock came along and now that's just absolutely blown up and defined a whole category that honestly, every brewery in the U S if not the world is scrambling to figure out. So mm-hmm. um, I saw that as a challenge and an opportunity and uh, here I am. That's awesome. Yeah. Congrats, man. Super cool. All right. Definitely. So you still get to stay in Chicago and uh, still get to do what you love. Yep. Um, and uh, any, any 
barrel aged uh, seltzers coming down the pike? Oh man, I wish I, I did make <laughs> one at goose. Um, really? Yeah, it was, it was basically a bourbon seltzer. I, I think it was 2018 and I honestly, I was just, uh, it was cold out. I think we were at the, uh, we were at Dusix or something and I was drinking some bourbon and I got to the last couple of sips and I was like, just thinking like, why, why can't we just make something like this? So it's like, it's really cold. It's got a lot more body than bourbon because it's been yeah. so diluted by water. Yeah. Um, and I think the next, the next week I went to work and I barrel aged water, honestly, it was that simple. Um, and then we started running trials, uh, uh, acidifying the water, filling the bourbon barrels to different uh, levels, um, rotating in out of the cooler to get better extraction. Um, and yeah, we, we came up with, uh, a, a barrel aged bourbon water, uh, per se. Um, and it, it was about to get released, but I think there was an issue with the bottles. So they ended up, um, that, that, that was kind of the spur to the, um, I think they have a, uh, RTD cocktail line now where they're, um, they're aging a, a permeate that comes from a, a filtration process that already has alcohol, um, yeah. throw it in the barrel to then pick up some of those wood characters. Dude, that's it, man. <laughs> like, that's the like thing that's, that's coming. Yeah. That's what's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, I did another podcast a couple of weeks ago with, uh, the folks from liquid courage. I think they're in Chicago. And that mm-hmm. is a bourbon kombucha RTD. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a tough one because bourbon and acidity kind of narrows your, your spectrum for a lot of creativity and balance. I think. Yeah. Like lemon and ginger. Okay. You know? Okay. Um, but that started, you know, what we're starting to see kind of, right. That's almost in that like world of like better for you cocktails, although it's yep. still alcohol, which, so I don't, you know, it's, it's less yeah. calories, I suppose. Absolutely. And I think we're just, we're going to continue. And I've been saying this for years, we're just going to continue to see that, that kind of um, overflow of, of beer, wine, soda, cocktail spirits, yeah. everything into each other. I mean, we just saw Boston beer and Mountain Dew produce a, a hard yeah. Mountain Dew, which it's happening, man. We're, we're, here we are. <laughs> like four loco all over again. Just put it, put it all in a container. We're back. We're back. Yeah. <laughs> that should give the worst headaches, man. Yep. Yep. We're back to Zima basically. Yeah. Yeah. Everything uh, old is new again. Mm-hmm. Awesome, man. All right. So let's talk um, barrel aging one-on-one. So, I mean, to me, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of sounds like that's kind of where your passion lies. Yes. Yes, okay. absolutely. Um, yeah. It, it, barrel aging and fermentation are kind of the two big kind of focuses of mine. Um, as, as you could probably see from my experience, um, a fair portion of it, of what I know now is obviously from Goose Island and, and New Holland. But um, I guess when it, when it comes to barrel aging, there's, there's kind of two different routes you can take. You can take that secondary fermentation um, where you're actually creating like a micro ecosystem within each cask. Yeah. Uh, and then the other one is more of like an extractive um, maturation. So you're, you're extracting the, uh, the flavors of the wood and the previously held spirit um, into the beer, um, while allowing that beer to age. So there is also an age component there. So let's, let's keep it as simple, high level right here. So what is barrel (laughs) aging and why has it become so popular today? Uh, barrel aging is, is just that it's, it's taking a cask, um, typically, uh, 53 gallon to 60 gallon cask that previously held either wine, bourbon, scotch, um, any spirit, really um that has any color to it um and aging it for a predetermined amount of time um and what happens is is you get a lot of flavors from the wood um whether that wood was charred previously for typically spirits or if it was toasted um you typical of the wine industry um you're extracting those flavors you're getting a degree of oxidation um so wood is very permeable um so you can you can get some oxidation, which in some most cases, depending on the beer, is yeah. it's going to be a good flavor development. Um, you're getting evaporation, uh, and then you're also getting an extraction of the, the spirit that was previously held in that wood. Um, and typically, the the wood that's used is um, uh, is oak, um, mostly for its porosity, its ability to swell and hold liquid. Um, yeah. Most most woods out there don't do that. Um, for example, red oak isn't, isn't the best. Um, a, a lot of pine, you don't want to use pine, even though it has a lot of my antimicrobial properties. Um, it doesn't have the same 
physical properties that that Oak mm. does. Okay. Interesting. Okay. And it was funny. So, you know, in doing some research here, I was seeing that, you know, really like originally barrels were used because it was easy and convenient and they were stackable, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And again, it goes back to being able to hold liquid. Yeah. Um, they, they were designed, um, they were prior to stainless. Again, that, that was the only way to serve and ship any beverage, honestly. Yeah. Um, and obviously you, you can roll them, you can stack them, you can, uh, again, I, I think the big thing is holding that liquid. Um, cause you, yeah. again, prior to any type of metallurgy, like that was the only way to do things. Mm-hmm. And making barrels is such a cool, you know, Cooperage is such a cool, you know, job back then, right? The people with the last name Cooper, like that's what they did. Absolutely. Right? That's Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So let's talk real quick about being a traditional brewer and that transition to becoming that, you know, that barrel, that barrel aging brewer, what's the difference there? What do you got to kind of think about? Yeah. I think like, um, my first two years in brewing were predominantly spent on, on the brew house. Um, but the transition to barrel aging obviously taught you a lot more about sanitation, um, being clean, um, not preventing cross contamination. Um, it, it taught you more about like theory. I think there's a lot of like, there's a lot of technical information about out there about brewing in general, but barrel aging there. I think there's still a lot of like, we're just starting to see a lot of technical data out there for what's happening in barrel aging, at least in the last like eight years or so. Um, as we get closer, as we get more like experienced in using GC and looking for specific compounds and flavor markers for how what's happening in the barrel. Um, but for brewing in general, I think there's, there's enough information out there that like anybody can learn it. Um, it really takes like hanging out and understanding what's going on with barrels and sourcing. Again, that's, that's huge. Knowing where the barrels are coming from, what previous lives they had, how are they, how, how they were handled prior. Um, I mean, that was a big thing with us, um, in the 2015 Bourbon County contamination, Mm -hmm. Um, that you might probably most of your listeners have heard of. Um, A lot of it came down to how those barrels were treated prior to arriving at the brewery. Um, We had a specification of eight year heaven Hill bourbon barrels, um, but the uh, cooperage um, uh, that was basically supplying those barrels, um, they weren't emptying those frequently enough. So mm. when they did, they, they emptied them lots. They would accumulate until they had a whole truckload of 280 barrels to then ship to us. But it was that, it was that sitting around drying out um, the inside of the barrel was no longer sanitary that, that carved out kind of an opportunistic risk for contamination that yeah. we, we didn't really fully understand until it was, it was too late. Um, so knowing where those barrels are coming from and then, how to receive them and, and, and treat them prior to uh, reduce that risk of contamination is another big thing um, that I have, we can go into if you'd like. Well, that's the perfect segue. <laughs> so that's kind of next on my list is, you know, how do we prepare these uh, barrels? You know, do we sanitize them? And there's a lot of brewers like, no. Um, so talk to me about, you know, inspecting them, um, rehydrating them, emptying them, purging, filling, oxidation, all that stuff. Let's walk through that process. All right. Yeah. Just blurt out if you want me to touch on something, but, um, <laughs> you yeah, your thing. you're the master. The, the first time I, I had any experience barrel aging, um, was at great river brewery in Davenport and we'd receive a barrel like or two off a truck, um, that went straight to Templeton Rye to pick it up. So typically they were, they were fresh. Um, but, you couldn't always be sure because you were just, you were picking up two barrels. You're maybe paying $120 a piece. And, um, they, they could have been like four months old. We didn't really know. Um, a lot of times you can tell if there's still liquid in them. Um, so I obviously like, I, I would recommend to any brewer and it's kind of perk of the job is when you do get a new shipment of barrels in, like flip them, collect yeah. that stuff, coffee filter. Yeah handed out to your brewers and everything. Um, but that's also a signature of like that barrel being fresh. Um, we would, we would stand that barrel up on its head and just top the the head part up with water that that's, you can do that. You can do that. I, I, I've been a big proponent of not rinsing the barrels. 
Okay. Um, I think steaming is is definitely okay, but I'm seeing a lot of brewers lately um, filling their barrels up with hot water. Yeah. And uh, that that would work. That works if you're looking at those barrels as more of like uh, an indefinite use used vessel um, for like uh, that secondary fermentation, those wild fermentations, any of that. But if you're looking for it for any degree of like maturation where you want to extract flavors from the, from the wood or whatever spirit was previously in there, I wouldn't recommend filling it with hot water. You can do steaming. Um, I've, you, you can sulfur barrels, sulfur works fine too, but um, there's, there's also a reoccurrence. Like if you're going, if you're planning on sitting on a barrel empty um, it should either be, it should be filled with beer. Um, I wouldn't wait. Uh, uh, another thing you could probably do is honestly just, uh, we started, we bought an ozonation machine and it's often used in the wine industry for ozonating water. And you can use that to rinse the exterior of the barrel that, that does help. Um, it, you can keep the barrels cold if you're in, in, in any kind of pinch for like, uh, filling, but you don't, I don't know, you, you want to knock down the risk of contamination. Uh, that was, that was a unique difference between New Holland and, and Goose Island, um, was the temperature regulation of barrel aging. So we, New Holland would actually store their barrels in a temperature controlled environment, about 49 degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would have more of a, they would age half the, uh, batch in freshly dumped spirit barrels. And the other half was freshly dumped dragon's milk barrels. So each, each one kind of lent its own character. And sure. if you're thinking about it, it was like, all right, here's the six month total age. You get three months in the fresh and three months in the secondary. Um, and you're going to pick up different flavors that way. Yeah. Um, I think uh, Stone did a little white paper back in 2014 or so about how uh, there's a higher vanillin content in second use barrels. I'm not sure of really the mechanism and everything there, but um, second use barrels do have value. Um, depending on how you treat them. Um, we would typically, because we were using second use, we were just rinse with cold water. And then the, all those barrels empty would be stored in the cooler for really no longer than a month or so. Um, but that was that, that was that rotation. So we were constantly like having to keep track of barrels as they were in and out, how what was previously held in them. Versus Goose, we uh, it was uh, a non-temperature regulated facility. So the theory there was you would get better expedited aging um but you would also see swelling and contraction of the wood as, as right. the temperature changed so it would get up to 85 in, in there in the summer it would get down to i mean probably around like 65 or so in the winter so that would obviously instill swelling and contraction of the wood but yeah, i mean that's how like once. The, the rick houses right in like kentucky right that's how they do it they're mm-hmm. not temperature controlled they just whatever the weather is outside that affects what goes on inside and that expands and it contracts yeah. Yep. And that lends they, they to see less different swings layers. Though, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Less swings in temperature. Chicago is the, the two poles of the, <laughs> <Real>. uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, really cold winters, really hot summers. Um, so we had that to our advantage. Um, and it, it worked well, like, uh, again, having a, a beer that sat for an entire year in a bourbon barrel, um, really is the best, uh, uh, kind of amplification of what was previously held in the barrel. Um, I, I, I got to really know the spirits at New Holland, um, that were previously held in the barrels. Cause we, we didn't, we weren't committed to just one distillery, um, that wasn't really sustainable, um, just in case there was a supply issue or anything. We were kind of more broad among, amongst like Buffalo Trace, Wild Turkey, Jim Beam, Heaven Hill, uh, and every, everything in between. Um, so I honestly had, I had never really gotten into bourbon, um, or understood it that well but I learned it through the beer. So, cause we had to taste every single, every single barrel and uh, you had favorites, you had ones you didn't really like, but when you kind of blended it all together, um, it was, it was a, it was really cool uh, to see those nuances come to life versus at goose. We, um, it was predominantly just heaven Hill until we started getting into a lot of the, uh, the barrel variants, um, which you started to see in um, I think 2018 or so. So, yeah, so some of the, you know, the different barrels, obviously you have the, the whiskey bourbon barrels and we're starting to see some of the rum barrels. We're starting to see some of those tequila barrels. Have you messed around with some of those? Yeah, yeah. So the uh, typically, I'm, I'm hesitant to use rum and tequila uh, because the integrity of the barrel is sometimes at risk because they've been reused from the bourbon industry. 
Um, so rum and tequila can typically use like almost anything. Like we were seeing wine barrels that were then sent to uh, rum distilleries to be aged. Um, same, same with tequila, uh, as it's, it's the same concept with scotch, like the majority of the bourbon barrels, like, I don't know, 15 million are going across the sea every year to be aged mm. for scotch. Um, that's the majority of the market of, bar- of barrels. Like I think, I, I think craft beer is only 5% of what is actually, um, consuming those barrels. But, uh, I think, yeah, again, it comes down to flavor matching and what your beer base is. Um, yeah. it's really important that that beer base is, is more than 8% alcohol because that's going to be, um, allow you to have some microbial resistance there. Um, keeping that beer relatively bitter too. uh, those alpha acids prevent a lot of like lactic acid bacteria from contaminating your beer. Um, as well as again, having that temperature control. So if, if you're, if you're kind of thinking that, uh, there might be a risk around your brewery or, or the barrels weren't treated the best prior to filling, um, throw them in a cooler, uh, because that's going to knock down the time. So like reactions happen at warmer temperatures quicker. So if you can knock down any of those reactions, again, it's more of a bandaid, but say if you age a beer for six months at 49 degrees versus six months at 85, which one's going to show contamination first? It's the one at 85. Interesting. And maybe would you think that that higher temperature would also produce uh, maybe stronger flavors because it was warmer. It was able to see. Yeah, into yeah layers for sure. Bit. Okay. Definitely. Um, and I mean, there's an art, that's another there's an art thing. to it, right? So there, there is. And I've, um, I've, I've been in situations where we needed to um, release a beer. We were coming up a, a, upon a deadline for a release, but the beer wasn't ready yet. Um, so I ended up uh, basically taking the beer in and out of the cooler every week to expedite that aging and swelling contraction. And it works. It works. I don't, I don't have the data to tell you about that, but um, on a sensory level, it it definitely um, improves the, the, uh, the flavor profile of of the beer. And that that was a, that was a wheat wine um, at the time. So it really showed um, what that, what that could actually do. What's a wheat wine? Cause I don't know if I've ever, I've heard, you know, barley wine and that would be something you'd age, but what's a wheat wine? Yeah, wheat wine is just a, a high ABV um, kind of uh, lighter beer that is made with a higher proportion of wheat, typically like just two row barley and wheat. Um, okay. New New Holland made a great one um, that was 50-50 wheat to two row and then aged in, I think, second and third use bourbon barrels. Um, at Goose, we ended up doing... Um, is that lighter in color? Very light in color. Okay. So... Uh, yeah, I, I basically took what I had was inspired by what was done at New Holland and and wanted to show what our process uh, did to the beer um, at 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 Goose. So basically, I stripped out all the specialty malts out of the malt bill for Bourbon County, and then just threw in some wheat and two row. Um, and that beer at that time was boiled for four hours. It was a double mash. Um, and then uh, fermented with our house ale strain and then aged in, in a bourbon barrel. So all the color that you see in, in that wheat wine is directly from the process. So all the melanoidins and caramelization in the kettle and then the, the fermentation and the barrel, um, it's, it's pretty much as naked as you can get with, uh, with Bourbon County, but um, really showcasing what our process does to the beer. Very neat. Is that something that's still out on the market? Yeah, yeah. You can find um, 2018 was the original. 2019 was aged in larceny weeded weeded bourbon mm. barrels. Um, I think the 2020 uh, we did a variant called Carmella, which is kind of modeled after a caramel apple. Um, and then I know Goose is going to be releasing a uh, a version of wheat wine in the next couple weeks. Not Bourbon County, but the same base uh, okay. aged in uh, barrels for a prolonged period of time. Um, so yeah, it's, it's out there. It's, it's a cool beer. Um, especially if you like bourbon, it's, it's the, <laughs> the bourbon drinkers beer of the, uh, of our, of Goose's portfolio. Nice. Right, I got to yeah. keep an eye out for that. I usually, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm usually getting my beer from breweries, but that'll, you know, cause me to go over to a, uh, you know, a beer distributor and, and see yep. what's going on over there. Okay. Definitely. That's exciting. <laughs> Very cool. I'm always interested to see, you know, new styles and something I haven't had before. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, cool. I'm really hoping that like, 
again, this is, this is more just my opinion, but I really, I would really like to see brewers um, utilize barrels to their full potential, whether they're, or, or just the wood in general. Cause I think there's a lot of opportunity that the, the industry hasn't really explored yet. Um, they're having a flavor house heyday right now um, using every, every flavor under the sun. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a lot of authenticity and storytelling that has yet to be told um, by using, using the barrel. Hmm. I like that. <laughs> All right. Very cool. All right. So obviously we're not going to put every style of beer in a barrel and I wouldn't think to put like that wheat style in a, in a barrel. Um, so obviously most people think Imperial stouts and, and doubles and strong ales, um, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, what, you know, I guess we do see some IPAs in there, but they would obviously lose a lot of that hoppiness. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. So, um, like I said earlier, like having higher BUs than you really are targeting um, for the, for whatever style you're doing, because it, it has a, it's a microbial point, but those BUs actually reduce as you age. Um, Goose did a, a really cool beer um, with Ron Pattinson uh, back in, I think, 2017, where we modeled the entire recipe after uh, a brewery yard stock ales, stock pale ales. So these were... These were higher ABV, really, really bitter beers that were aged in, in the yard of, of the brewery back in, I don't know, the, the 19th century. And basically the intention there was like, all right, if we can age this beer in, in the yard, under the sun, under the elements, and at the end of that aging period, it comes back to us like uncontaminated, tasting really good, then it has resili- resilience for the market. So then it can be really shipped anywhere. Um, so that was kind of a test of time, but it also like it rounded out these beers phenomenally because there's still a degree of, uh, in our case, intentional contamination, but back then like unrecognized contamination with uh, Britannomyces. Yeah. So some of those Brett variants, um, yeah. specifically like Clasenii, really have a nice like pineapple tropical note. So it kind of really accentuated the the bitterness that was already there and gave you kind of a profile of, of different varieties of hops while still just using, um, simple noble bittering hops. Um, yeah, so that, that was really cool. Um, in terms, yeah, in terms of like the beer profile, like keeping your alcohol high. Um, and again, this is all for the maturation side, keeping your alcohol high, your bitterness pretty high. Um, again, a lot of this will just come to you through trials, but I think stylistically, I I don't think there's many, there, there aren't many beers that couldn't be aged in a barrel, um, depending on what the intention is. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's a blank palette, but yeah. there are, there are some things to consider. When and that's what makes it fun, right? That's why it's a whole, the whole different animal. Um, mm-hmm. and you're, you know, it's, it's probably quiet down there, right? You're, you're in the cellar by yourself doing your thing. You know, do you sing yeah. to the barrels? Do you talk to them? You, you can, you can, there's, <laughs> there's actually studies coming out right now that, having that, that resonance and vibration actually can expedite aging. Um, I think it's Mm. being explored pretty heavily in the wine industry right now. Um, that's one thing I I don't see a whole lot of, but I think we're getting there is having that two way conversation between wine, the wine industry and brewing. Um, cause there's a lot of useful techniques and equipment and, uh, technologies in the wine industry that, uh, that brewers aren't really, um, used to using. Well, I've seen something, right? I think you know you could take a, a beer, age it in, say, like a red wine barrel, and then give it back to the winery to age another wine in that. Like I've been seeing yeah. some of that crossover. Yeah, and then that goes back to the same like the the spirit barrel, beer barrel kind yeah. of thing. New New Holland did the beer barrel bourbon. That was basically just bouncing barrels back between the brewery and the distillery. Um cask mates yeah. with Jameson, right? Yep. Yep. And again, like wine, wine barrels, I think have, uh, have always been seen as like a one and done, like, um, just for sour aging, but like you, Mm -hmm. you can really get some unique characteristics out of a wine barrel. If you, if you use that first age as just that maturation, um, we, we did a bourbon County with, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Bordeaux wine barrels. And it's honestly my favorite beer that goose ever made. Nice. But, is, that, is that findable? Uh, man, I think I, I only have like two bottles left, but it was a Brasserie Noir, um, okay. just Bourbon County Bay Station wine barrels. And it just really had a, a nice like chocolate covered cherry uh, note to it. And while still being like ma- a massive beer. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And then, uh, I, I think the other thing I didn't cover really was, um, the alcohol pickup in, in barrels. That's, that's not something really, uh, talked about, especially when it comes to TTB, but there is, there is a, a free alcohol, um, extraction mm. that happens um up, uh, occasionally upwards of depending on how you emptied your barrels or whatnot but typically i think there's like about two gallons of spirit in the wood of the bourbon mm. barrel um if you were to weigh the barrel um freshly dumped versus yeah. four or five weeks dry uh there there is a a lot of uh spirit still left in those barrels i guess it's um, not sold so there's not a tax to be collected from the ttb so they can yeah pound for sure. But you're also depending on it to keep that internal environment yeah. sanitary. Interesting. What about like char um, on the, on the barrels? Does that come into play at all? Or is that kind of, you know, kind of lost with the, the bourbon aging? Yeah, that that's, I think more of like a surface area kind of thing. Obviously there's a flavor component, but I don't think there's really like, I mean, char will mess with you if you're not filtering it out when you're extracting the beer. Um, okay. But um, I don't, I don't think there's a huge component there, uh, especially with the char as it flakes off. But I think as it's, as it's the interface between the wood and the, and the actual beer, um, there is a lot happening there in terms of flavor, but you're really looking for like that, that very thin, um, surface of between the char and the wood, because that's, that's where like, that's the flavor. Yeah. Okay. And if we were to say again, do the, you know, maybe a higher ABV IPA, maybe, would you, would you only age this like one to three months versus like six to 36 yeah. for, for, okay. Yeah. Um, it depends, it depends what you want. Again, if you're doing an imperial traditional and traditional imperial IPA, um, it, it, it can be a great component to have like that nice, like little like bit a of little touch of like, Oh, like, yeah. And Oak and everything. It adds dimension. It adds body. It might actually help clarify the beer too. Uh, I know people, okay. a lot of people don't like clear IPAs anymore, but it's crazy. It, could, it could be beer, good for the beer. <laughs> and then you, you can also dry hop it after barrel aging to mm. kind of then layer in more of those, those notes that you might be looking for the notes that might've been lost in barrel aging. Yeah, um, might get some like vanilla out of that, right? Maybe, or some, even like some floral or something like absolutely, that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. New, New Holland did a really cool series called, uh, it was a Hatter series after Mad Hatter. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we, did a lot of barrel aging of, of IPAs there. Um, we okay. did a rye, a rye hatter. We did, a oh man, we, we did a lot of them. Um, and they were, they were an oak hatter, uh, and having, having the, the vanilla and the, the biscuit notes coming from the, the barrel where it was a really nice addition. Now that I think about it, um, I had a rye IPA that was aged in barrels that was like, one of my favorite beers now that I think about it. Yeah. I'm like, shit, I never had one of those before. I never <laughs> seen many people do that. And that was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I guess like, I don't know, we haven't really talked too much about sours. You want to powwow on that? Yeah. Real quick though. How often are you tasting the beer in the barrels? Or are you kind of just leaving it? Ah, good, good question. Um, I highly recommend all brewers going to a stainless steel nail um, technique. I, okay. I wouldn't really like it, it, as you're opening the bung, exposing it to air. Um, I wouldn't move those barrels either. Um, moving them will impart flavor chaos. Um, mm. whether that's sloshing around, opening it up for contamination, further oxidation. Um, once the beer is in the barrel, leave it and the less you handle it, the better off you are. So with like, with like, uh, if you want a sample, just have a drill bit, have a nail, have a cup, drill, beer will come out, fill your cup, put the nail in and then oh, just yeah. tap it. Just tap it. You don't have to go far. You just a centimeter or two in and, and you're yeah. good. Um, and then you can sample that obviously as frequently as you want, but, um, I don't, I don't think there's really a, a code for how frequently you sample if you're, if you're doing that method. Okay. Um, granted, if you're going through the bung, um, I, I would try to limit that as much as possible. Okay. And most of these beers are bottled, but we're starting to see more of that, you know, canning. Is that, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that? Um, it cause chaos? Old, is it, is it yeah, less authentic? School, it's, I, I've always liked like barrel aged beers coming out of a bottle. Yeah. Um, let alone like 
I don't know how ma- how much brewers are actually testing their products for like uh, integrity. Like obviously after for most for most products in cans, after a year that you, there's no can warranty. So if if that product starts eating at the liner of the cans or something else happens, or for example, like you there, it, you didn't get full uh, attenuation or barrel aging is dirty. There's going to be microbes in there. And if you have any residual sugar, which you probably do, because that beer needs to be balanced, um, you might see, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because likely if you're, if you're canning a barrel aged beer, you're probably not pasteurizing it either. Mm. Okay. All good points. Very cool. There's definitely a risk there, but yeah. (laughs) Especially with temperature change and that, you know, a little shaking around and things like that. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. What was the kind of the most unique like flavor combo um, or food or fruit that you guys have, uh, you know, uh, created, put in a barrel, et cetera. Um, I've always, I've, I really love coffee um, yeah. and it's not, it's not anything unique or anything, but I think as, as we start to see a lot of like new coffee roasteries coming up and playing with the techniques there, like, I think there's, I was, I was wowed a couple of years ago by passion house's uh, natural coffee because mm-hmm. you, you have coffee beans that are lightly roasted look exactly like coffee and you, you grind them up and drink it. And it tastes like blueberries. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, this is co- coffee that's been um, matured and fermented on the coffee bean or on the, uh, with the fruit. And then it, they take off the, the fruit and everything and that that flavor all those funky flavors that come from fermentation are instilled yeah. into the bean and then roasted and the, the I, I was just, yeah i was wowed by that yeah you can use the cascara apparently it has higher um caffeine content than the beans itself but they also have really nice like raisiny notes and yeah um especially if you can get them fresh fresh there's probably a lot of like cherry and ripe red fruits um in terms of like unique ingredients otherwise uh you guys like experiment with anything crazy that just didn't work? Um, I'm trying to think. Man. You got Sam down at Dogfish, you know, throwing like lobster in his beer, you know? Yeah, no, I I, I have I have a code there. I'm not I'm not gonna use animal products really. I mean, we we had the the idea of doing a um one of the first beers I I had a hand in at Goose was uh inspired after a Tom and Jerry cocktail. Nice. It was um it was a, a cocktail typically, typically drunk in the Midwest, like Wisconsin, Minnesota or so most prominently. And it, they use eggnog, rum, brandy, mm-hmm. nutmeg, uh, and warm milk. So we wanted to make something that was everything that, that, that cocktail tasted like, but without yeah. really the animal product. So we even, we explored using like egg albumin, which is used in the wine industry as a clarifier. Okay. Um, but we didn't go, we didn't really go that route we just use the traditional ingredients that, um, available to us as brewers, uh, water, malt, hops, yeast, and barrels to really impart those same characteristics. Um, so again, like you, you can do stories, you can tell, you can have inspiration from a variety of other sources while still using traditional ingredients without having to go to your local flavor house. And I'm not knocking flavor houses, but you, you can do it all without having to just dump a little extract in there or something. That's cool. And I can totally see how the Tom and Jerry would work, right? That's dark rum, like your cognac, that milk. Also, like, Mm -hmm. I know the grasshopper cocktail is super, you know, popular in the Midwest and that's going to be like creme de menthe or something in there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. How that stuff could work. (laughs) Definitely. Nice, man. Cool. All right. Well, talk to me a little bit. Oh, real quick. When I have say like a bourbon County versus some other barrel aged stat, like that mouthfeel, it's just different. Like you're like, holy shit, this is, yep. this is way better than the rest. You know, it just is like, how does that happen? Um, I have, no I, I think that has, a, no, there, there's no, I, I, I have a philosophy. There's no secrets in the industry unless you're doing something wrong, but uh, there, <laughs> there are no secrets, honestly, there it's, we've, we've told everybody about how bourbon County is made. And I think it's helped really elevate the overall playing field within craft beer when it comes yeah. to barrel aged imperial stouts um, to the point where there's a lot of brews making better barrel aged stouts than gooses now. But yeah. um, I think a lot of it has to do with what, what's happening in the brew house. Um, I think a lot of like stout bases specifically do need a backbone of like Munich malt. That Munich malt I think is integral to really having a foundation to the rest of the beer. 
um, balancing out your roasted and chocolate malts um, or carafa malt, uh, carafa, whatever. Um, and then a longer boil. I think what you're doing in, in the kettle, uh, all those Maillard reactions, the caramelization of the sugars, um, even the, again, the Maillard between the, the proteins and sugars are really creating something that uh, you, you can't really get with a, um, uh, a gris that uses any other types of malts that's, that's yeah. happening specifically in the kettle. Um, and then, and then the yeast, I, I think, uh, with goose, like we had to brew other beers to provide enough yeast for bourbon County because, um, it was our terminal consumer of, of our yeast bank, basically, right. Um, it required such a pitch rate that it was hard to keep up with that. That's, that's why we had three, one, two, we had green line. We had all these other yeast beers and you'll see that at, at any brewery that is, is making a high volume of barely a beer. Um, they're, they're like, they likely have the same yeast as some of their lighter, paler, um, low ABV beers because they, okay. they need something to grow enough biomass for that. Um, but that yeast specifically is also going to, determine what that beer tastes like the the esters the phenols the aldehydes the alcohols that are coming off of that how that whole fermentation is controlled um it's probably the the one other factor apart from that the brew house that's going to be the 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 layer to your to a really good base for barrel aging Hmm. perfect great explanation (laughs) <laughs> yeah i just like i have those beers and i'm like these are just different like they're a step above you know it's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. again like you, you see a lot of imperial stats that people are just going for the alcohol um they're, sure. they're trying to cl- they're tra- trying to claim a 12 percent, and maybe then they're adding some some sort of they're adding vanilla beans or they're adding coffee or they're adding something else to compensate but i think you can make a phenomenal base beer with just the tools you have uh, available to you as a brewer i love it awesome all right, so let's let's switch over to uh, the wild side, man. The, the yeah. wild yeast. Uh, you know, obviously these are kind of this is a whole different animal again. So we went from you know again you're talking traditional brewing with sanitized, very clean stainless tanks to some big heavy beers uh, in in the bourbon barrels to some wild yeast beers like a lambic or something like that. That's going <laughs> to be using you know completely different barrels or you know open fermentation. So talk to me about you know what you really like about, you know, wild yeast and these styles of beers and kind of what the innovations that you're seeing in the industry. Yeah. Um, again, this is, this is, uh, this whole kind of category is a, uh, an area very near and dear to my heart because it's just, it, it allows me to apply a lot of my background while simultaneously having that really strong creative edge. Um, and I, I think from my experience, um, I've seen a lot of brewers go for like single inoculates or from yeast suppliers, whether that's uh, Brett Brooks or they're going for like Electobacillus brevis or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've when I when I first got to New Holland and um, was told I was going to be in charge of the barrel program, um, the president of the company he basically was like, "All right, we got 26 wine barrels here and a Colch that doesn't meet our specification. Do something with it." So again, like not knowing a whole lot about barrel aging, um, I kind of took more of like a, a kombucha philosophy to it. Um, we filled all the barrels and with a coal space. Again, it's a, a low ABV, 4.9%, yeah. low bitterness. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something highly susceptible to contamination. And I was going to take just that route. I was going to contaminate these barrels. So I went to the farmer's market. I bought like jalapenos. I bought apricots. I bought peaches. I bought... Yeah pretty much everything I could find. Um, a few of the barrels, I took some of my favorite beer, like, uh, Bam beer from, um, uh, Jolly pumpkin, mm-hmm. um, or, or any beers that I knew had live active microcultures to them and just added, added each of those ingredients to each barrel, um, yeah. gave it six months warm, went back and tasted them. And, uh, I guess this, this methodology then soon blossomed into something that was inspired after, what Lauren Salazar was doing in Belgium um, was basically kind of creating this, uh, this mother culture. So tasting, tasting these barrels, like, yeah, a few of them went off fine, but a few of them were phenomenal. So mm-hmm. I, I took the, the ones that were really, really good. And then I used that beer to inoculate more beer. So I, I pumped that barrel into new barrels, 
Uh, we had simultaneously just acquired six new fooders. So I, I used that beer to then scale to, to more beer, more barrels. And it was kind of like a phylogenetic tree where you have this, just one mother that's then growing into multiple uh, branches. Interesting. Um, granted, there were, it was less of a controlled method and there wasn't as much as we didn't have the tools and resources to track what was growing in there. I could just use sensory um, to really help scale and grow what was already in, in process. Um, and I think I'm, I'm more of that philosophy than anything else, trying to just have single monoculture geese growing in, in a wild ale or something. And obviously like right now we're seeing a lot of, um, we've been seeing a lot of like the Berliners and Gozas, um, the single inoculate kettle sour um, yeah. and, uh, the sour VCA by Lalamond, which produces lactic acid and alcohol simultaneously. So you don't have to have the complexity of two separate fermentations. So that That's was done them. here, you know, Matt, Dr. Matt Farber here at the university of sciences. Um, the, the yeah. they call it the, the Philly sour. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's freaking awesome. But, um, I think there's also a lot like the sours that I, the kettle sours that I've experienced with is, is honestly just soaking at 10 pounds of, uh, wireman acidulated malt or, or just a base pail, uh, under a CO2 environment at 101 degrees for 12 to 24 hours and getting a really nice culture that way. And then pitching it and kind of growing it naturally. Um, it's pretty much like, what what you're doing anyways but i, I right. like having that like traditional um natural growth to whatever micro ecosystems you have evolving um in your program um and then just honestly that comes it comes down to scheduling um there's going to be low cost there because you're you're not investing you're not buying a pitchable quantity or you don't have to repit or you don't have to like repropagate or do any of that um but it, you just have to schedule correctly so as soon as that beer is tasting good um, take what analytics you can start to develop like a, a profile for that beer. If it is just one beer um, and just track it, track what you can um, and really get to learn that, that how that culture works um, by trial and error. Again, like yeah. beer, beer is beer the way we know it because of trial and error. Absolutely. And what's the best way to like track that? Are you just kind of taking notes on a notepad or in your journal or on, you know, in a word document? Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I love Excel. Um, yeah, I also same. love just having a paper journal and tracking pH, total acidity, um, or either or um, sensory, and kind of getting to the point where you you understand whether where this this beer meets your expectation, um, and then blending. Um, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of blending, so having a lot of barrels to work off of to to build a build that profile to where you see it fit for the consumer. Um, one of the, I think the most proud I've been in a beer that I've, I've been involved with was uh, we did a Flanders red at goose and nice. it was just that um, we, we went through our entire inventory of barrels, tasting every one of them until we found two that we really liked. We pitched those into a fooder, let it age for about six months and then distributed the contents of that fooder into bourbon barrels. So again, it was finding a a vessel that wasn't used typically in secondary wild fermentation. We had a plethora of them. Um, and then we filled each, each bourbon barrel about 20% of the way, and then topped it up with that same beer. And so, but after about a year and a half, we, we then had like, we could exponentially grow, um, that base beer to, to that profile and then blend it accordingly. You could, again, that was, that was more of a, that was more inspired after what New Holland did with their Blue Sunday program, uh, but it took it to another level where you can actually get into a full-scale uh, production without a lot of cost input aside from right. the time and, and and a base beer. So when you're blending too, are you kind of just taking almost like a cup's worth? It's like, all right, 50% of this, 50 of this, and then 25, 75, and 75, 25, and kind of playing around with that? Yeah, that's that's one method, and it works really well. But once you start getting into the the territory of like fifty, a hundred, two hundred barrels, um, <laughs> yeah, you're, uh, yeah, you gotta be careful. Yeah, yeah, it's dangerous, you know. Um, I I like actually just having that more like analog ma- manual way of just laying out a representative sample of every barrel that you will plan on blending, and then with a with a post-it note, just write a a one or two word description of that sample have it all laid out in front of you. And then you can kind of like with a dropper or a micro pipe pattern, you can okay. build uh, a blend accordingly. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's an art that we're 
seeing less of in the industry now, especially as more brewers are going more towards like, what's the cook sour I can make? What's stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about there is patience and science and mm-hmm. you kind of almost need somebody to do that like full time if you're. If yeah. You're yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's cool. That's wild. Mm-hmm. Literally. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, like to, to wild yeast, like we, we did a couple projects. Um, one, uh, might've been 2018 or so we, we wanted to make an all Illinois beer. Um, and I think the easiest part of that was like sourcing the, the water, Lake Michigan, the malt and hops we can find in Illinois. Uh, it was the yeast that was going to be the problem. So we ended up turning, uh, this one project into like a full blown camping trip kind of yeast lab kind of, uh, interaction. And, um, we went down to Shawnee national forest in like October of 2017, ideal environment for just like. It was cold. Again, we did it. We did it when it was like slightly cold out because if you do it warm, there's going to be, you're going to get a ton of other things. Um, And we just, we laid out the Petri dishes. We swapped slugs. We collected water from a tree knot. We swabbed like oyster mushrooms. Um, We collected like uh, pine needles and uh, berries and stuff and brought it all back. And then we started propagating. Um, and really you're taking kind of, notes of all this, right? It's like, you got to kind of write it all down and what's in there yeah. and what's, you know, what's in this one, what's in that one. Tracking everything. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, but we used, we used our, 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 we used our noses, honestly, that was our number one, uh, qualifier for any, anything we would have found was, um, cause if it smelled bad, we were not going to use it. Um, and then once we, once we smelled it and we found like four or five that we really liked, um, we then ran analytics um, because we then had uh, four of the qualifiers for that. Uh, yeah. It produced alcohol. There was a reduction in, in pH. Um, we saw growth, like uh, exponential growth of yeast cells. Um, and what was the other? Um, it might've just been three. Um, as long as the pH got below four, um, it, it was okay. So then we, we found, we found a yeast that we could then partner with a, uh, a heavy fermenter and uh, while still accentuating the characteristics of that yeast and we grew it up and ran a couple of trials and we ended up producing a commercial scale batch of that beer. And um, right now we're writing a, um, we're going to write a paper for MBAA on, yeah. on what we did and how we did it and what the results were. So pretty excited about that. Do you think that Toucan Sam, the Fruit Loops guy who was saying, follow your nose this whole time was really secretly creating beer on the side? That's, that's very wise. I like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> awesome. yeah, yeah. You do a awesome. number of things with the master brewers, right? Or you post a lot about them. Do you write those? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, um, I, I wrote an article for them back in May of last year, uh, yeah. about fermentation quality control. Mm-hmm. Um, and just what basically it was a lot, it went into how brewers prioritize the brew house recipe. So like, if I were to ask you to write a recipe for beer, you're going to tell me like, all right, water malt hops and yeast but you're not telling me anything about like what fermentation is going to do so we're we're i was kind of just like proposing like hey we need to consider a little bit more when we're going to make beer because more than half of the flavor profile we're we're experiencing is coming from fermentation and nobody says anything about that it's kind of like here's uh paul george ringo and john you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's there's more to it than that (laughs) yeah exactly awesome man Dude, this has been a lot of fun. Is there anything that we didn't cover you want to talk about more? Um, man. What's new? What's coming down the pike? Like anything we should What's be on the happening? lookout for? Um, I don't know. Just uh, follow me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm posting a lot of articles on there and uh, trying to spread knowledge and wisdom. And um, yeah, I think that's that's the important thing, especially in yeah. this day and age. There's a lot of misinformation and or people just not talking. And yeah. it's a good dialogue. Yeah, it's perfect. Uh, you know, yourself and uh, Cape or not, like that's my LinkedIn is yeah, all day long. Yeah. Um, she, I love she's it. She's got some great articles too. Uh, yeah. Good beer hunting. Yeah, she's great. Cool. All right, Tim. Well, hey, this has been a ton of fun. I appreciate your time and uh, thanks for connecting. And, you know, obviously welcome back anytime. Um, are you on social media anywhere besides LinkedIn? You do like Instagram yeah, I have, or anything? I have, I have Facebook and Instagram. I'm, I'm probably a little bit more uh, on Instagram than Facebook, but okay. yeah. And we can, we can find obviously like Mark Anthony, we can find Goose Island obviously and um, New Holland um, and mm-hmm. kind of 
see where you came from and, and, you know, see that journey and how those programs continue to evolve. Um, yeah, they're all doing really cool things. Awesome. Yeah. Cool, dude. All right. Well, Hey, cheers. Thank you so much. Cheers everyone. Bye. right that'll do it for today's episode appreciate you tuning in i hope you learned something i hope you really enjoyed it and if so tell a friend leave that five-star rating i mentioned earlier and comment on apple podcasts subscribe on any platform spread it around the world let's make it happen i appreciate y'all cheers and beer mighty things